Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium. Episode 56, Why Did the Arabs Win?, Part 1. The Sources Religion is one of those topics that most of us try to avoid talking about in polite conversation. It's something which is so personal to each individual that you risk causing offence if you venture even a little into defining your own opinion on the topic. As you all know, when it comes to Islam, the stakes can get even higher. But we have to talk about Islam if we're going to understand the Arab victories over the Romans in the 630s AD. So before we begin talking about it, let's get some disclaimers out of the way, shall we? Mike Duncan never stated a religious policy for the History of Rome podcast, but I feel safe in saying that the History of Rome narrative was constructed on the belief that the supernatural had no influence whatsoever over human affairs. Now, I'm not claiming anything about Mike's own religious beliefs. What I mean is that the policy of the podcast was to assume that there was no supernatural. The story of Roman history was told as if only human beings and the physical world they live in were responsible for the events which occurred. And that policy applied to everyone, be they Jupiter, Apollo, Sol Invictus, Yahweh, or Jesus Christ. Whether or not any of those deities exist or not was irrelevant to the story of Roman history. I would like to state at the outset that that is my official policy too. The history of Byzantium believes that the truth or fiction of any particular religious belief is irrelevant to this podcast. I am relating events of the past from the presumption that men and women are alone on this planet. And again, that's not because I am an atheist or an agnostic or anything. It's because it makes for more straightforward history this way. Of course, it also hopefully minimizes the number of people you can offend. However, when discussing the origins of Islam, it's going to be difficult to avoid controversy. When Christianity was born, it was a tiny event within the giant Roman Empire. So Mike never had to discuss Jesus' life in anything more than a quick summary in case somehow you hadn't heard that one before. 
The narrative only had to deal with this new religion when the Christians became such a large proportion of the population that they came to the emperor's attention. With Islam, the situation is quite different. The traditional history of Islam is that the religion was fully formed by the time of Muhammad's death in 632 and was the inspiration for the world-changing invasions which swiftly followed. It's not possible, therefore, for me to ignore the origins of this new belief and still adequately answer the question, why did the Arabs win? Now, for a lot of Muslims, I imagine this examination and questioning of the traditional story is in itself somewhat unwelcome. I only hope you can see the spirit in which this podcast exists. Its aim is to communicate the story that has come down to us about historical events in the most accurate and entertaining way possible. But, and I think this is the most important part, it is just that. It is me reporting to you what various historians across the centuries have concluded from the available evidence. That evidence is interpreted differently by each generation, and new information comes to light which changes perspectives all the time. I have merely read as much as I can to see what I find the most convincing or just the most interesting, and I package it here for you. This is not a discussion of religious truth. It's an academic debate summary. And this does not represent anything even resembling the final word on the subject. So, what is the traditional account of the origins of Islam? Muhammad was born in the Arabian city of Mecca around 570 AD. He would grow up to be a merchant in the Quraysh tribe, but rejected the polytheism of his people and spent time praying in the hills and caves outside the city. In 610, aged about 40, he was praying in a cave when he was suddenly confronted by the angel Gabriel, who commanded him to recite. For the next 23 years, Muhammad recited messages from God, told to him by Gabriel. He would tell his followers these messages, and they would memorize them and eventually write them down. The God who spoke was the God familiar to readers of the Old and New Testaments, and he demanded an uncompromising monotheist belief. Muhammad began to preach this message to his fellow Quraysh. This caused serious tensions as one of the reasons for the wealth of the tribe was their control of the Kaaba, a shrine in Mecca, which attracted pilgrims from across Arabia. Muhammad learnt of a plot against his life in 622 and headed north to the city of Medina with some of his followers. There Muhammad led them into battle with the Quraysh and with other tribes. The victories won by the Muslims demonstrated that obedience to Allah, the Arabic word for God, brought victory and success in the next life. After his death in 632, the Muslim community, energized by talk of jihad and Muhammad's example, marched outward toward Rome and Persia. The problem that scholars have encountered with this story is that the vast majority of those details can only reliably be dated to the 8th or even the 9th centuries. As far as we know, the first man to write a biography about Muhammad was a scholar named Ibn Ishaq, who would have been writing in the mid-700s. His work has not survived intact. 
It is preserved, or some of it is, in later writings from the 800s AD. Another source of information about Muhammad comes from the large collection of hadiths. These are reports or snippets of the teachings, deeds, and sayings of the Prophet that were again written down only in the 700s and not compiled into a form which survives until the 800s. Now you might be thinking, why does that matter at all? Nicephorus and Theophanes are writing around 800, and yet we're taking their word for events from the same period. But there are a number of important differences. For a start, the Roman historians are working within a literary tradition and describing a world which we can relatively easily examine. For example, if we see a passage which describes Justinian II as minting coins, visiting the Hagia Sophia, and then being mutilated in the Hippodrome, well, we can validate much of that information. We have the coins, we have the church, we have the site of the great racetrack. For Muhammad's life in Arabia, it's far harder to find comparable sites or physical evidence for his movements. But that needn't matter too much. The problem is that a lot of historical detective work is based on comparing texts with what was written earlier. So if Theophanes claims that the emperors always wore red boots, then we can read Procopius and see if he mentions that. Or if Nicephorus says that Heraclius was tall, we can see if George of Pisidia commented on his height. We have a way of at least establishing some common ground between our sources. Unfortunately, pre-Islamic Arabia had no literary tradition of this kind. Aside from the Yemen in the very south of the peninsula, Arabia was not a place with much history of organized states. And if you have no state, you aren't going to have historians. The Roman and Persian historians of the time did not deign to travel into the desert to chronicle any events there either. And so we have nothing to compare the later Muslim histories too. Another thing about Theophanes and Nicephorus' histories is that both men were working from earlier written reports. Uh, now those previous, those earlier written histories are doubtless filled with biases, inaccuracies and gossip, all the usual things we have to wade through. But by following a written chain, we can at least analyse and cross-check and look for the way each man wrote in order to analyse perhaps where his sources came from. Whereas the hadiths and the biographies of Muhammad were based largely on oral tradition, i.e. stories told by one person to another and one generation to the next. Now the Arabs had a strong tradition of oral transmission. Out in the deserts, under the stars, it was more practical for men to memorize stories and, and poems rather than weigh their camels down with lots of books. So they were a people used to remembering stories, sometimes with what we would describe as photographic memory. However, modern historians are extremely sceptical about the accuracy of oral traditions. Mark Witto, for example, cites studies by anthropologists which repeatedly demonstrate that oral history is fluid and adaptable, and how the primary purpose of a tribal history is to explain the present rather than preserve the accuracy of the past. In other words, 
As circumstances change, so does the tribe's memory of its history as they look to create a smooth narrative explaining their current situation. Or, how about this quote from historian Patricia Crone on the problem of oral tradition in this context? Adherents of a new religion necessarily inhabit a different world from that of the founder himself. Were it otherwise, his attempt at a religious paradigm shift would have failed. Hence, they will go over this tradition oblivious of the problems with which the founder struggled, struggling with problems which the founder never envisaged, and in so doing, not only elaborate, but also reshape the tradition which they received. And since the world of our grandparents easily becomes ancient history, of which we know little and understand even less, the founder must resign himself to the fact that it only takes three generations for his life and works to be thoroughly reshaped. The problem for us here is less the details of Muhammad's biography. The problem for us is that the men who describe the Battle of Yarmouk or the conquest of Egypt are writing narrative accounts that we can't really verify. They are writing from a world in the 800s where Islam is the religion of a world empire, an empire that by then extends from the south of France all the way to the Indus Valley. They are rich and powerful, and they are trying to look back 200 years and describe the world of men who lived on the fringes of Heraclius' world. This is why I couldn't include a traditional account of the actions of the Arabs in the same vein that I once described the motives of Khusro. Because the histories describing the actions of Omar and Muawiyah are quite different creations from the history that we're used to. To quote an unhappy Patricia Crone again, nothing in the Arab accounts of the conquests betrays the fact that the Arabs were moving into the colourful world described by historians of late antiquity. The Syrian pillar saints dispensing grace, the Coptic peasants, riotous Alexandrians or sophisticated Nestorians, all these have been conjured away at a stroke. One comes straight from late antiquity to classical Islam. Not only were the Arab historians writing from the point of view of their now giant empire, they were also writing a national history and a religious history. Of course, Nicephorus and Theophanes are also writing in a religious context and looking to explain the fate of Byzantium in terms of God's will. But again, they aren't writing about Jesus or even Constantine. They are writing about emperors and armies who we can place more firmly in a historical context. And there's precedence. They can't include miracles in uh, discussions of the Anatolikon theme when no other historian has ever done such for Roman armies. The Arab historians are having to do the equivalent of summarizing the rise of Christianity, the rise of Rome, and the rise of the Greek language all in one coherent narrative when they're describing the rise of Islam and the rise of the Arab nation to this dominant position. It's a huge project that they took on, and it leaves us with this gap, this hard-to-explain transition of Arab tribes living on the desert fringe suddenly being able to overthrow the Romans and Persians.
and the Arabs' own histories are not a source we can comfortably rely on, even though some details we have to include. And this is the key to the majority of your end-of-the-century questions. Would you be able to explain the composition and fighting tactics of the Arab armies? Could you give a description of the Arab armies that Heraclius was facing? Why were the Arab forces suddenly so much more effective against the imperial armies? Was there any development in Arab training, tactics, or strategy? And so on. If we can't rely on the Arab histories for all our information, then we're going to have to look elsewhere. But looking elsewhere inevitably goes deeper into this murky questioning of the origins of Islam. And that may not feel entirely relevant to the history of Byzantium. So here's what we're going to do. Next episode, we have an interview with Tom Holland, the author of In the Shadow of the Sword, along with several other fine books. Tom is one of those Western scholars who looks into the foundation of the Arab Empire and sees a completely different narrative to the traditional Muslim one. I will let him share his ideas with you, and I ask him how he explains the Arab victories over the Romans. In the meantime, I'm going to record two episodes. One will hopefully have the answers to your questions, or at least the best answers that can be found currently. The other will have more theories about the origins of Islam. That episode will be for sale, as I don't think it will be to everyone's tastes and so I will leave it up to you if you want it or not. It's not a fundraising sale. You don't need to buy it to keep the podcast going. But in trying to find the answers to your questions about the Arab armies and the Arab state, it was impossible not to go deep down the rabbit hole into what caused the religious revolution in Arabia. And so if you're interested in finding more, it will be available soon. In the meantime, contact me at thehistoryofbyzantium at gmail.com the website is thehistoryofbyzantium.com and I will be back in a day or two with Tom Holland. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 